Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Andrew Littlejohn of Leiden University to discuss disaster heritage around the Great East Japan earthquake of 2011. This heritage typically consists of ruins from catastrophic natural disasters that, while initially may be preserved for commemorative purposes, can end up being articulated to attract tourism to sites of mass death. Together we explore how disaster heritage fosters debate around the relationship between humans and their environments, as well as its potential to disrupt authorised heritage discourse. We also consider whether any disaster can truly be called natural, given the intrinsic human elements to all disasters. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So first off, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yeah, so I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And before coming to the Netherlands in 2018, I did my PhD and then a one-year postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University in the US. And my current expertise is very much in the intersections of environmental anthropology and the anthropology of Japan. But in terms of how I got to those interests, you know, like many of us, I visited Japan when I was young, became very interested in the country, particularly uh, interested in Japanese theatrical arts, for example, and decided to study Japanese at university. And while I was at university, I was reading books on different aspects of Japanese art and culture and society. This was at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And I always found that the books that struck me as the most useful, funnily enough, that gave me the most insight into how I could actually navigate daily life in Japan were books by anthropologists. So I gravitated very much towards anthropology, also sociology, and later would go on to study anthropology uh, uh, as a master's student at Oxford um, and then uh, as a PhD student at Harvard. And at Harvard, I had initially decided to build on another interest of mine, which is relationships between human beings and the environment, um, and to look specifically at the fishing industry in northeast Japan. Now, I entered Harvard in 2011, and so you don't have to do a lot of mental work to understand how a plan to do a project on the fishing industry in northeastern Japan could have been transformed by the events that we're now commemorating 10 years on. So I shifted as the areas where I had initially planned to do field work were inundated by the tsunami. I shifted towards doing a project on what you might call the cultural dimensions, uh, social dimensions of recovery and reconstruction, um, particularly um, with regard to human environment relations in the Northeast. And that's really brought me to my current interests um, in environmental anthropology and also kind of politicized debates over infrastructure and how it affects the relationships between human beings and their environment. 
So in an earlier episode on heritage making, we defined heritage as tangible or intangible culture that has been recognized as something of cultural importance by local, national or international cultural organizations. However, you've also written of unregistered heritage that falls outside of this official classification. Within this context, could you define disaster heritage and how it fits into this broader idea of heritage? Yes, that's a a great question. So if we start with the the definition that um, you talked about initially, within this framework, the framework of what we might call a, a more official designation or understanding of heritage, you would probably define disaster heritage as tangible objects or intangible practices that are recognized as culturally important because they testify to certain aspects of a disaster and how it unfolded, as well as aspects of how human beings responded to that disaster. People preserve those buildings, for example, because they testify to things like the tsunami's height, you know, how high the damage on the building reaches, but also the stories they can tell about the reason people were saved because someone had a master key to the roof and thus they could flee to a certain height. So the stories that people tell about the human responses to the disaster through the objects that are preserved. It's also important to recognize that the aspects of a disaster that heritage, uh, tangible or intangible, can be considered to speak to might be uh, um, themselves human in origin or social in origin, right? So they might speak to the inequalities that lead to certain populations being affected more than others. But so broadly speaking, then you could say that disaster heritage is objects or practices recognized as important because they testify to the dimensions of a disaster and how people responded to it. So tangible objects can allow you to trace the contours of the catastrophe in space. The tsunami reached this height or inundated this far inland or struck with such ferocity it caused this much damage to a building and be used to narrate what happened to whom and why by, for example, kataribe or people who specialize in telling the stories of those objects. Now, official disaster heritage can also encompass memorials. Um, if we think about more intentional objects, designed objects, uh, like those studied by anthropologists such as Tohoku University's Sebastian Bore, and while memorials are often deliberately designed structures, there can often be an overlap in which ruins left by a disaster are later repurposed as, as memorials, for example. So as I hope that these brief examples begin to show, disaster heritage in the official sense doesn't simply represent the past. In this case, the past that we call or label the disaster they also serve to construct and carry forward particular versions of that past. So which buildings do you preserve as heritage and which do you not? What stories do you tell about those buildings and whose stories right, are all part of the process by which disaster heritage and its construction participates in the production of narratives about the event itself and the carrying forward of those narratives into the future with a variety of social, political, cultural effects. And we can talk about those more maybe in a moment um, when we get to maybe specific understandings of disaster heritage after the 2011 tsunami. So this is a way in which we can think with 
official heritage and how you can then define disaster heritage within that context. But we can also think about heritage in other ways. You mentioned uh, unregistered heritage, which I've written about. But we can also think about more vernacular definitions of heritage, right? Simply as things from the past that are carried forward by communities. And this allows us to take a slightly different perspective on what disaster heritage is or might be. And the first thing I want to raise is that sometimes practices that are considered uh, heritage more generally have a disastrous history that often isn't acknowledged. Um, this is often the case in northeastern Japan with practices like lion or deer dances, um, uh, shishimai or shishiodori, some of which might be registered and thus fall within the category of official heritage, but many of which are not, but are still considered part of the unregistered, unofficial um, cultural uh, assets of particular communities. And so if you look at the history of those practices, you often see that they were begun in response to earlier moments of loss and catastrophe, such as obviously deaths at sea, um, deaths in things like tsunamis or earthquakes, but also um, suffering and death through uh, events like famines. And so much of what is considered today as the, the kind of rich culture, culture or cultural tapestry of the Northeast um, actually has its roots in response to earlier catastrophes, disasters. And that's often not discussed when we talk about those um, things. And then if we also go and think more with these kinds of vernacular understandings of heritage rather than just unregistered heritage, you can also see how histories of disaster um, become part of, say, the naming of areas. Um, in the areas I work in, like Minamisaniku in particular, you have many districts whose name kind of encodes histories of previous disasters. Uh, names like uh, Obunezawa or Large Boat Creek, for example, which is an area deep in land. And local people there tell stories, perhaps apocryphal, that the area gets its name from a moment when a ship was washed uh, deep in land during a tsunami, for example. And so we can think of those stories, which are told by people passed on, collected in, in folklore collections as part of the vernacular heritage of those regions, right? And the, that they tell these stories about the way in which disasters permeate their wider culture and history. So in your research, you've discussed disaster heritage largely within the context of the Great East Japan earthquake and the uh, ensuing tsunami, which devastated the eastern Japan coastline on the 11th of March 2011, otherwise known as 311 in Japan. Can you give us some more examples of disaster heritage in this context and why it has become so prominent? Yes. So the most prominent example of disaster heritage in the context of 311 is probably what is today called Shinsaiko, which are buildings and objects left behind in the disaster regions that are considered as bearing traces of the tsunami itself. The most famous of these is one which I'm sure your listeners will have seen photographs of, Minami Sandiku's Bosai Taisak Chosha, or Disaster Prevention Center in English, which in many ways has become the symbol of the disaster itself, or one of the key symbols of the tsunami itself. Um, but there are many other examples. Um, a famous one is in Onagawa, uh, which is the toppled police box, which is also being preserved as a shinsaiko. 
And then in Ishinomaki, uh, there's uh, an example that has been raised repeatedly in the 10th anniversary um, uh, stories in the media, which is Okawa Elementary School, uh, where 74 children and 10 staff died. That has also been preserved as a remnant or a ruin of the tsunami. Now, these became particularly prominent for several reasons. The first and most, in many ways, straightforward one is the impulse to remember. There's been a strong desire on the behalf of many members of local communities to carry forward memories of what happened to them on that day. And sites like these kinds of large buildings, ruined objects, seem particularly powerful instances of the tsunami, particularly useful for narrating the story of the tsunami. So there's a sort of impulse to remember at the grassroots level that is behind the preservation of these objects. But there's also at the more municipal and national level, a desire to ensure that Borsai disaster prevention remains at the forefronts of people's minds in the future. And this has seen then the state, for example, the prefectural government provide funding for the preservation of Shinsai Iko as testaments to the necessity of Borsai in their minds. So this is the, you've got the grassroots impulse to remember, you've got the more state level need for objects that can be used to demonstrate the necessity of, of disaster prevention. And then you have a third factor behind their growing prominence, which is the uh, which is a, a little bit more of a, of a difficult one to talk about in some senses because it's the way in which rebuilding has focused on tourism and stimulating tourism to the disaster regions. So Shinsaiko have, since the early days, been sites of what some might call pilgrimage and others might call dark tourism on the part of visitors to the areas. And people seeing that have... Um, increasingly agitated for their preservation to give the area a sort of competitive advantage within the struggles between parts of regional Japan um, to attract um, internal tourists. And one of the more vivid images that I remember of this touristic impulse is that you could buy beer bottles in the temporary shopping arcade in Minami Sandiku with pictures of the Borsai Taisaku Chosha printed on the label, which, as you can imagine, was actually pretty controversial and um, led to complaints to the municipal government by some residents. But it shows you this way in which their image was being leveraged um, also um, to attract tourists. So these are some of the reasons why they became prominent, but their prominence is also due often to the, the controversy that's accompanied attempts to preserve them. Not all, um, but several of the major Shinsaiko are sites of death. 43 people died at Minami Sandiku's disaster prevention center. I've already mentioned how 74 children and 10 staff died at the Okawa elementary school in Ishinomaki. And so from the outset, debates over whether to preserve or demolish these buildings have become incredibly contentious, heated, even taboo in the disaster regions, um, and sort of splitting people along fault lines, um, depending on their relationship to the building. Are you the relative of someone 
who died in it, right? Or are you a shopkeeper in the temporary shopping arcade who doesn't know anyone who died there, but knows that the building is drawing visitors from the outside into the region because of its sort of visceral, almost grotesque magnetism. And then these intense debates, the ways in which the, the buildings themselves have kind of caused fractures or fault lines within communities, depending on their relation on people's relationships to them, also then drew the attention of the media. And so you have lots and lots of articles in regional newspapers, national newspapers about the debates over sites like the Borsai Tai Sakuchosha, the Disaster Prevention Center, um, which further cemented its status as a kind of powerful symbol of the disaster um, itself. So as such, through these kinds of debates, these, these buildings, these what we might call heritage objects, have become sites where struggles between different visions um, played out in the disaster regions. Visions about what the disaster itself was as an event, about who experienced different aspects of it, about whose experiences matter more than others. But then they also became sites where struggles between um, the, if you like, uh, impulse to um, soothe the suffering of local residents came into conflict with the need to keep stimulating inflows of people from the outside, including by circulating images of these structures. So they're prominent in many ways because they're really the kind of linchpins of tension or uh, debate over different visions for rebuilding, visions where what matters most is soothing the hearts of people who suffered or where what matters most is reviving the local economy, for example. And they're places where we can see in real time the relationship between the crafting or making of heritage and narratives about heritage and the different ways in which people were orienting themselves towards reconstruction in general and how they were thinking about the future of the regions being reconstructed. Yeah, so was 311 a formative moment for disaster heritage, or is it a continuation of a pre-existing phenomenon? After all, Japan is well known as a nation prone to natural disasters, so surely there must be some disaster heritage preceding 311. Yeah, so the answer to this question is both, and for slightly different reasons. So it's absolutely the case that disaster heritage is not a new phenomenon in Japan. And for the reason you've already mentioned, that Japan is somewhere buffeted continually by disasters in many ways over its history, certainly buffeted regularly by disasters. We can see examples of disaster heritage in Niigata, for example, in places like Nagaoka City's Yamakoshi district, where you find a memorial park where houses are preserved that were flooded after the Chuetsu um, earthquake caused landslides that blocked rivers and sent water cascading into inhabited areas. And then if you look at other parts of the country, you'll find many preserved relics of or foundations of buildings that were destroyed by things like fires or landslides. These can be found across Japan. And that's even before you get to the question of, if we think about art as heritage, right, the, the artistic heritage of the nation that's passed down, and we think then about everything from the wave looming over Mount Fuji 
in the famous uh, woodblock print to all of the many, many instances in which disasters have been recorded in Japanese art. And so in a way, Japan's museums are full of inscriptions or traces of the nation's history of disasters, right? So certainly you can see the preservation of things like Shinsaiko, the crafting of narratives around them and the leveraging of those narratives within different visions for how to reconstruct. You can certainly see that as a continuation of this long history in which there's a to and fro or an interplay between disaster and culture in Japan. But they're also different and they also do represent a bit of a break. And the way in which they are different is that the material heritage specifically of tsunamis is very rare. And there's a few reasons for that. One is that compared to earthquakes or fires, tsunamis are not as common. Certainly large-scale tsunamis are not as common. Maybe they strike every 50 years, for example. So you have less opportunities to preserve objects left behind by them. But there's another reason, which is that if one thinks about the buildings today preserved as Shinsaiko, all of them, without exception, are concrete buildings or structures built during Japan's construction boom from the 1970s to the 1990s, after which, as the slogan of the Koizumi government at the time went, the focus shifted from concrete to people. That was one of their slogans, right? So the post-war era was one of enormous concrete construction, building over of the coastlines of areas of uh, Japan, and then this shift from concrete to people, as they labeled it. And if you then look at earlier periods, we think back to, say, the 1960s, the tsunamis that came before then, these were periods where the northeast, but also other parts of coastal Japan were not covered in concrete structures, right? Structures that can resist a tsunami sufficiently to retain some trace of themselves, but more characterized by wooden architecture, for example, which is completely flattened, completely destroyed, and thus leaves very little that can be preserved as a heritage object after a tsunami. So in many ways, then, the reason why we have these Shinsaiko, these new instances of disaster heritage, is because of the shift towards concrete in the coastlines in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And as such, they are also, in a way, the ruins of Japanese modernity or of late Japanese modernity, the ruins of post-war modernity. And that makes them different from previous examples of disaster heritage. They very much trace the way in which Japan's concrete modernity all right, and construction state gave birth to new kinds of vulnerability in coastal areas, new possibilities for disasters, and also new possibilities for the endurance or preservation of objects as disaster heritage. And so in this way, they do represent a new direction within Japan's history of the interplay between disaster and culture. Very interesting. I'm just curious, because we had a webinar in October discussing the memory of 311, and one of our speakers, Dr. Mark Pendleton, he suggested the idea that there is no such thing as a natural disaster, that there is just disasters. And so, for example, would it be inappropriate to categorize such heritage sites as the Hiroshima A-bomb dome with disaster heritage of 311. So it's widely agreed within 
the social scientific study of disasters that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. And this proposition, it's been made now for more than 40 years at least. You can go back to the writing of sociologists like Kenneth Hewitt, who were arguing this during the 1980s, and then you look in anthropology at the work of Anthony Oliver Smith and Susanna Hoffman. There's always an irreducibly human component to any disaster, and that can be as simple as why were the coastlines inhabited? Now, you may say, well, the coastlines are surely inhabited for eminently understandable reasons. But if you look historically, you can see that in earlier periods, prehistorical periods, for example, uh, people didn't live in areas that were vulnerable to tsunamis. And you can see a relationship in the more modern periods between the development of coastal areas and the growth of things like coastal defenses, right? such as seawalls, which stimulate development by giving the idea that it's now safe to live in these areas. Even before coastal defenses, you see the relationship between land reclamation, right, winning land from the sea and vulnerability to tsunamis. So the 311 uh, disasters are no exception to this rule. Uh, they are not natural disasters. They, they were they were events that contain within them irreducible human, social, cultural, political, historical components. And that is the case as much for the tsunami as it is for the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. One of the interesting wrinkles about this, though, is that obviously in the aftermath of, of the disaster, we did see a discourse emerge that categorized the tsunami as a tensai or you know, natural or heavenly disaster, and the Fukushima meltdown part as a man-made or anthropogenic disaster. And so you might say that, well, whatever the, the cause is from a um, sociological or analytical perspective, people certainly believe and act as if the tsunami was a natural event. But where that gets complicated and interesting is precisely in the fact that people across the disaster regions analogize Shinsaiko, the ruins left by the tsunami, to the atom bomb dome in Hiroshima. And so you see that the debates over whether to preserve the disaster prevention center in Minami Sandiku, I've read uh, letters people wrote to the local government as part of a public consultation on whether to preserve the disaster prevention center, and dozens of them analogize it to the atom bomb dome and say, this is our atom bomb dome. The same happens in other areas, where other Shinsai Iko are also compared to the atom bomb dome by local residents themselves or municipal officials looking to preserve them. And so there's a certain curious paradox here, in which on the one hand, um, people model a discourse that says the tsunami was a natural event, one which we can't do anything about, and in which they explicitly compare it to a anthropogenic catastrophe like the nuclear bomb, and in which they say that by preserving the remnants of the buildings left by the tsunami, we can ensure that we never make the same mistakes again that led to people's suffering during the tsunami. And I think what this shows is that there's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of the kind of public discourse on the event in which the labeling of it as a tensai as a natural disaster or heavenly disaster grinds against a kind of implicit recognition that there were aspects of the event that are irreducibly 
human, social, political, economic, that depend on the history of these areas, the reclamation of land, the building of new concrete buildings in areas known to be vulnerable to tsunamis. And I think this contradiction or tension plays out in the discourse around the heritage of the tsunami and what to do with it. I'm really um, interested in that trends that people in Tohoku were saying that this is our atom bomb dome. That's such a strange idea to me that people would want to have a site that has that dark connotation to it. Do you know what the uh, desire would be to have something like that in your community? I think the desire to preserve it is actually quite similar to some of what we saw people writing about in the aftermath of the Hiroshima um, events, or I should say the long aftermath, uh, decades afterwards. Lisa Yoneyama has written about this nicely in her book Hiroshima Traces, which contains some testimonies about survivors who would talk decades later about what they wish had happened in terms of the preservation of the landscape. And some people would say things like they, they wished the city had never been cleaned up. They wished that it still looked like how it did the days after. They wished that the fires were still burning because then people would never forget that trauma, that incredible, unimaginable suffering. You see something similar playing out in the discussion over whether to preserve or not the remains of places like the Disaster Prevention Center, where people will say things like, you know, by looking at it, you see the height of the wave, you feel the impact of the tsunami, um, you cannot uh, but imagine its fury. And they hope that this will play a positive role in the sense of ensuring that generations to come don't forget about the risks inherent in coastal life. So that is one part of it, and certainly that's a major part of what animates grassroots desire to preserve the buildings. But there is this other side, as I've said, this recognition that that affect produced by the building can be leveraged to bring in flows of people and thus to stimulate the local economy. And this is something that you also see in the public consultation documents on whether to preserve the Borsai Taisaku Chosha in Minami Sandiku, for example, where people would say, if we keep it, people will come to look at it, they'll spend money in the shopping arcades, they'll stay in local Minshku or inns. And some people saying, if we demolish the building, Minami Sandiku will be forgotten and the economy will collapse. This kind of rhetoric as well. So there's also a tension there then between a desire to retain this objects that viscerally remind people of what happened as warnings to future generations and a desire to leverage that affect in stimulating the economies of areas that have long been suffering due to the outflow of young people to the cities and the general dire economic situation of the Northeast as a whole or comparatively dire in which it's been in a slow burn recession for a long time. So I think those things are two of the reasons why there's a push to preserve them. But it's also worth remembering that the prefectural government in Miyagi, for example, very much threw its weight behind the idea of preserving ruins of the tsunami because they saw them as being objects that could stimulate greater support for 
a reconstruction premised on bolsai, on disaster prevention. You think about all of these policies, higher ground relocation, building of seawalls that require a lot of buy-in from people. And, you know, people pushing those policies saw the ruins left by the tsunami as powerful symbols of the, the need for bolsai, for disaster prevention, as the kind of key motivating impulse of reconstruction. And that led to money being poured into it, right? The prefecture gave each municipality funds for the preservation of one Shinsaiko. And that's also a major stimulus. And you might well hypothesize that had that prefectural, that more state-level support not been forthcoming, many of these buildings would have been demolished. If anyone is more interested in reading in depth about the politics specifically around Shinsaiko, I have an article forthcoming in American Ethnologist about that. Great, thank you. So as you mentioned, there's been debate around the preservation of these sites. You've coined the term ontological dissensus in your article, Dividing Worlds, Tsunamis, Seawalls, and Ontological Politics in Northeast Japan, in reference to division and an opinion on how humans live in relation to their natural environment. Could you unpack this idea of ontological dissensus for us and what role disaster heritage has to play here? Yeah, so, well, first we have to define the first part of the term, ontological, right? And ontological ideas can be thought of simply as ideas about what entities are and how they relate to each other. So you might think the question, what is a human being, is an ontological question, and it also depends on the answer you give to how we relate to or do not relate to other kinds of animals, right? Yeah, so ideas about what entities are, ideas which are dependent on how you conceive those entities as relating or not to other ones. And ontological ideas can operate at different scales and in different domains, right? So you can have things like what we call social ontology. Social ontology might be ideas about what a community is, what a society is, what a nation is, right? Who belongs to that, um, uh, that category? This is the domain of social ontology. But then you also have ideas about, for example, how we define and understand nature as a domain. And one of your previous speakers, Aiki Rotz, has written about the idea of there being contested natures in northeastern Japan, different ideas about what things are um, unique or indigenous to the area, for example, about what kind of natural environment uh, characterizes the Northeast and should be reconstructed after the disaster. So these are also ontological ideas. And so to talk about ontological dissensus then is to talk about moments when these ideas become politicized. That is when they become embroiled in political struggles between different groups, struggles over who gets what, where and how, such as a say in how you go about rebuilding. And if this is still a little bit abstract, a little bit difficult to understand for people, you might think, for example, of an example completely alien to Japan, but uh, debates about abortion in the United States, right, where the different political positions one takes depend on whether one perceives the embryo as simply a collection of cells or as something imbued with a human soul or spirit, right? This is an ontological idea, an idea about what a, an object or an entity is, 
that then becomes politicized, as in becomes part of struggles between different groups uh, for power, influence, etc. Now, I've written about how ontological ideas became embroiled in the politics of reconstruction in the case of the debates over whether or not to build seawalls. And I'm thinking specifically about ideas about contested natures, what Rotz has written about, as I already mentioned. So how different understandings, for example, of the relationship between sea and society um, became politicized in the debates over whether or not to build seawalls. And if we, if we think about this then in the context of heritage specifically, we can see historically that there's a, a to and fro, a give and take between what one might call um, practical ontologies. That is how people create relationships with other entities in practice and in doing so create certain ideas about what those entities are, but also who they as people are. We can see a relationship between those practices and the development of heritage or of things that today we call heritage. I've already given the example of things like deer dances and lion dances in the Northeast, which emerged historically, right, as means of propitiating spirits, kami, that had the power to affect one's life safety within the regions, right? So these practices that have what one might also call religious origins later become re-signified as heritage. And sometimes then, even after have people have moved on ideationally, that is, they no longer believe or strictly believe in the religious aspects of those practices, they continue to construct their identities as local heritage. So a lion dance or a deer dance can continue to participate in the construction of what I earlier referred to as social ontology, ideas about who people are, what the community is, the subjectivity of the people in these places. And as such, they can then become embroiled in um, political controversies, um, right? Controversies over how to go about rebuilding, how to go about reconstructing those social bodies in the aftermath of disaster. So these are some of the ways in which there can be a relationship between ontological ideas and heritage, and thus in which there can be a relationship between ontological dissensus and heritage, right? So when people refuse a seawall because it would uh, damage a jinja or shrine, uh, we can see a relationship between um, things that are on the one hand about practical ontologies, about religious ideas or practices, but that are also on the other about the heritage of the region and how it becomes passed on or preserved. I have one last quick question. So as Japan is far from unique in being an area prone to natural disasters, are you aware of disaster heritage elsewhere, either regionally or globally? So uh, yes, absolutely. One of the places that has been hit by a tsunami, for example, within what we might call uh, the modern period or the, the late modern period is obviously Indonesia, which was struck in by the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And there's been a lot of examples of the heritage of that tsunami being constructed and preserved. This is something that um, Trinidad Rico has written about in her book, uh, which is called Constructing Destruction, 
where she talks about um, tsunami heritage uh, in uh, Indonesia. Examples that she gives are the so-called tsunami boats, which is where, a bit like in northeastern Japan, boats were washed on top of buildings and deposited there by the tsunami. And these were preserved in situ as disaster heritage by people in Aceh, for example. So if you go to Aceh today, you can still see boats perched on top of buildings where they are preserved as examples of disaster heritage or as uh, monuments, memorials to the tsunami. This is also a topic that uh, Anna-Marie Samuels has written about in her book, After the Tsunami, where she talks about memory in urban space in Aceh, a very good book on, on the subject. Uh, there are also examples from China that we can see. Uh, the sociologist De Bin Zhu has written about disaster heritage after the Sichuan earthquake. And again, about the relationship between the construction of that heritage and the politics of rebuilding or reconstruction. So he talks about how sites that suited or were easily related to positive narratives of the actions taken by the state were preserved in a manner similar to Shinsai Iko while buildings that seemed to testify to the failures of the government, either before the disaster, right, in creating vulnerability, or in their response to the disaster, were either concealed or actively dismantled. So again, this relationship between the construction of heritage um, and the narratives around it and particular political interests or particular ideas about how to rebuild, what to prioritize. So yeah, this has been written about in Indonesia, in China, and certainly also in other, other places. We think about Auckland, New Zealand, or we think about Italy. There are other examples of disaster heritage um, as well. Fascinating. Well, thank you, Andrew, for answering all my questions. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what projects you're currently working on? Yes. So the first thing I'm working on right now is a, a book manuscript about reconstruction um, after the 311 tsunami, and particularly about what's been called the Borto de Mondai or the seawall problem, about um, what I like to call divisive infrastructures in, in the double sense of the word, right? Infrastructures that are divisive because they cause divisions amongst the local communities, right? Should we build them? Should we not build them? And that these have deleterious effects on people's social relationships, but also divisive in the sense that they literally create divisions within the spaces being rebuilt uh, and also within the ecologies. And these divisions have negative effects on the very objects that the walls are meant to preserve, which are human social worlds, social worlds in which people are dependent on their relationships with uh, an understanding of other organisms or entities in their environment. So uh, I'm working on a, a, yeah, a book manuscript uh, on that, and then uh, also uh, preparing a, a wider project on divisive infrastructure and particularly climate proofing, which I'm hoping to explore in countries other than Japan, right? The adoption of climate proofing measures worldwide is exploding. And these often, again, have similar effects to that which we saw in Tohoku. So you think about how in the United States, for example, attempts to build new coastal defenses are being resisted furiously by fishermen whose livelihoods they would uh, damage. And this is something I want to look at then in contexts other than northeastern Japan. 
But in Japan itself, I'm also working on a project on what's called the rural turn phenomenon, Inaka turn gensho, which in, in the aftermath of 311, there's been a huge interest in the question of whether municipalities can stimulate the more inflow of people from the cities, people dissatisfied with city life, looking for a new kind of rural way of living, and whether that can be used to counter depopulation. And so I have a project ongoing uh, on that, um, interviewing so-called rural turners and understand their relationships with pre-existing communities, and also then looking at the wider discourse on the rural turn, which is often embedded in somewhat utopian ideas about how new technologies are going to free people from being bound to the urban centers. And so you're going to have satellite offices of IT companies set up in rural Tohoku, or you're going to have people moving around Japan all the time and no longer feeling bound to any one particular place. And so you then get a tension between, on the one hand, this imagined kind of new flexible mobile worker who doesn't need to be in the cities and the desires of municipalities to create more grounded communities, right, to bring people in for the longer term. So also working then on a project on the discourse and reality of the rural turn in Japan and what it means for the future of depopulating rural areas. Great, let's look forward to then. Thank you for joining me today, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You can find a link to Andrew's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Enrico Kramer of the University of Cambridge to discuss how big data is revolutionizing our understandings of prehistoric societies, laying out shifts in demographics and cultural exchange that occurred with early migration from the Korean Peninsula to the Japanese mainland. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.